Welcome to a Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. I'm Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Masonia Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. This is Sarah Massoni of Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences Food Innovation Center. Sarah Marshall is off today taking care of her family, and we wish her the very best, and we'll hang out with her real soon. We're glad that everyone has joined us today, and we're still honoring our social distancing by calling in for the show. We think it's important for us to be here with stories of hope for our listeners, and thanks for joining us as we hear stories of female food entrepreneurs and people working in the food business. I have some food news for you today. I want to tell everybody about the Specialty Food Association's Fancy Food Show coming up in New York City. It's June 12th to the 14th, and the Food Innovation Center will be there with 10 companies with us in our incubator kitchen area. The companies joining us are Patrick Prince of Waves Caribbean, Sukhdevan Rippey of Kalsa Salsa, Lisa Tran of Tantan Deli Cafe, Corey Sue Morris of Retreat Foods, Sabasagi of Saba Sauces, Holly Ong of Sabejo, Steve Curtis of Elevate Your Bake, Kazi Wright of Mosaic Grove, Tanya Farman of Queen of Hearts, and Rebecca Christensen of Portland Salt Company. Wow, that's a mouthful. There's going to be a lot of great things happening there in New York City, and we'll look forward to seeing you all there if you join us. If any of our food friends out there have an announcement to make, please contact us through the website, submit through the startupradionetwork.com page, or you can message us on Instagram at Masonian Marshall. We will help spread the news about any of your food news. I am not alone today on this Zoom call. I have a guest, and it's Tegan Moran of Oregon State University's Small Farms Programs. Hi, Tegan. Hi there, Sarah. I am so glad you joined me today, and I want to help connect our listeners to the programs that you work in at OSU via your website. Can you tell us what the link is for your website? Yes, you can look us up at smallfarms.oregonstate.edu. Perfect. If there are people out there that would like to attend any of the workshops or use any of the resources created by Small Farms, how do they do that? Are there personal events or is everything online programming? It runs across the board. So we are a statewide presence. And so Extension Services operates housed out of Oregon State University. However, we have a statewide presence and there are programs that are very site specific or regionally specific as we recognize that farming can look very different on the coast as it does on the valley floor or over out east. 
So if you do go to our website, you can find all of our programs as well as to connect with your regional program. And that being said, I uh, work in the Southern Willamette Valley. And so I help to facilitate several ways to connect people, uh, some of which are farmer networks, others are direct programming that is regionally specific, some online we are starting to do in person and farm tours this summer. Oh, that's great. Yes, of course, following COVID protocol. Wonderful. So now let's just talk a little bit about you. Can you tell us how you got started in farming and agriculture? Absolutely. Well, I'd say that the journey started after graduating college and my 21-year-old self was on a quest to understand intentional living and community. I was deeply dissatisfied and disillusioned with what I felt was the status quo of working in nuclear family units and feeling very separate from our other human beings. And so I started traveling and seeking out communities who were living intentionally together I did not have a religious basis for this. And so the glue that I ended up finding, the really the binding agent of these communities was that of growing and producing food with one another. Uh, I found groups of people living together who were trying to nourish one another through healthy food and the pursuit of healthy relationships. And it, so it was really through community that I found farming. And I spent several years living in various intentional communities, growing food. And yet I still held this narrative that came from my parents, from society overall, that farming was not necessarily a viable career path in this day and age. I held it in my core that there was no way that this was going to be a reality when I returned home, when I got back to quote unquote real life. <laughs> and so when I stopped my travels and came back to Oregon, where I'm born and raised, I went back to graduate school, the simple oh. thing to do. And I pursued community-based education. Oh, great. With an emphasis of working with adults as I felt that, you know, communities have the resources they need to create change and often just needs a little bit of support. Yeah. Well, while I was doing this, I also fell madly in love with my now husband who oh. uh, comes from England and who was very clear that farming was his path. Nice. So he started to pursue internships and training opportunities in Oregon to get a acclimated and acquainted with the farming community in Oregon. And as I finished my degree, we started to really step into the farming community in Oregon. And at the time, this was in the Portland metro area. And it was through internships like at Zenger Farm. And then mm. ultimately through a farmer training program that we both entered into called the Rogue Farm Corps which is one of Oregon's uh, primary internship, legal internship programs for farmers and ranchers in Oregon. And slowly I started to combat that narrative that farming was not a viable path. Mm -hmm. And 
we decided to make the leap into farming full-time after two years in an extensive farmer training program. And we went on to manage a farm and have a child and continued to explore how to farm as a family in Oregon that did not have access to land. Mm. Do you have your own farm now? Well, we we do. (laughs) And we just ended up uh, purchasing a property with our family this last August. And we're brand new on the land and we are observing and learning and we are both working full time. My husband at another farm and I work with Oregon State University to support farmers. And part of that is the harsh reality that uh, it takes a lot to build a viable farm business. I think. A lot of us hold more than one job, whether we count being, you know, the mom at home or the one who cooks the meals. And on top of that, have a full-time job. It's a lot, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you ended up on a farm. That's a, that's a really cool thing to have in your life. Um, I do have a question about the Oregon Small Farm News. Mm-hmm. It seems that you have a online newsletter that's giving out all sorts of great commercial small farm information for food for entrepreneurs. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the Oregon Small Farm News is one of the outward facing uh, publications out of our statewide small farms program. And what's really great about it is it pulls the threads together from this wide network of approaches to farming in Oregon. It gives an opportunity for our faculty to share research, as well as for us to feature stories with partner organizations or with individual farmers, really giving voice to what's happening or most relevant at the time. So it's a really eclectic collection of information related to farming and a really great way to get a sense of what's happening in Oregon right now. Yeah, and I see it says there are three main um, areas of emphasis, small acreage stewardship, commercial small farms, and community food systems. It sounds like you kind of know all about all three of those things. Well, I think what's really important and why I deeply value the work of the Small Farms Program is that we don't see ourselves as the silo, but this interconnected mm-hmm. uh, player in, in ultimately how do we create a vibrant local food system and a food economy. And so thinking about how all those pieces come together. So our work is really holistic and it really crosses this wide, beautiful, intricate web of food systems work for everything from working in the soil to even connecting with policy on a national level. Yeah. And I see there's a email listed um, that people could connect with you at smallfarmsprogram at oregonstate.edu. So if somebody's living in, say, Washington, D.C., and they said, I'm going to move to Oregon, I want to work with the small farms program in Oregon, would that be a good email address to email to find more information? Yeah, that would be a great place to start. And then that can, you'll get directed depending on what your topic of interest or your background is to a faculty or someone like me, one of the outreach program coordinators. I think one of the hardest things about making decisions is people can decide they want a farm, but then they make the decision to get a farm. And then they're sort of like, oh, now what do I do? 
So is there something that you all help or do you help people figure out what their farm would be good at? Oh, thank you so much, Sarah, for asking. <laughs> it's one of the, you know, the most frequent conversation that I get the pleasure of having is, yeah, here I am. What can I do with this property? Yeah. So we actually have a publication out that's called What Can I Do With My Small Farm? You can mm-hmm. actually Google What Can I Do With My Small Farm? Mm-hmm. And it's a guide and it walks you through a series of questions you'll need to answer to help inform that decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, the hardest responses I have to give people is often it depends. And it's not just about your land characteristics, although those are, those are incredibly important, but it's also about you personally, because yeah. farming is deeply personal. Yes. And there's a lot of decisions to be made uh, to guide how you will be successful. And in Oregon, you know, we have something called water rights as well, which yeah, it's complicated. you <laughs> have to have an irrigation right to, to sell certain crops that you want to grow. And so, yeah, there's some limiting factors and that is a great guide to start with. So if I were to buy a small farm, I can read what can I do with my small farm and it's going to give me some key points for sort of getting started and thinking about it. Yeah. Do you offer like a consultation on that? Like, can do you do like an ideation session? Have you, has your, is your group just through extension or is there sort of some training around that or some classes that people can take? Yeah, uh, there are. So we do workshops, we do educational programs and series. We have some that are online that are courses. There's one called Growing Farms for the more serious uh, endeavor. I also help facilitate something called Exploring the Small Farm Dream, which is a three-part series where we go more in-depth. And then we do work one-on-one with people. Oftentimes that, uh, you know, we offer people these foundational resources as a start, almost say, hey, review this as some homework, and then let's have a more detailed conversation. And again, you know, we have a statewide presence, although we might look different in different regions, partially because of the complexities of how extension is funded. Uh, And yet we do aim to have someone that you can connect with. And so wouldn't it be cool if somebody were to grow a product and then decide to do a value-added food product as well? Is that something that you help with as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're really fortunate in Oregon, and this is actually some of the work Small Farms Program and many, many others were involved with advocating for the farm direct laws in Oregon that really make it far easier and legal for small scale producers to sell a variety of value added products. And so we have a whole suite of resources that can inform people, especially about how to keep it legal. In fact, I think that's the title of one. And uh, yeah, we can help guide those decisions as well as uh, connect with additional resources and who do you need to be working with to sell what and how. I know there's uh, something that passed a while ago called the Oregon Pickle Bill. Do you ever hear people talk about the Pickle Bill? Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's a variety of bills that sort of fall under um, the Farm Direct law, the pickle bill. There's also the uh, 10,000 bird exemption, which is oh, the one for chickens. enabled um, people to be able to process up to 10,000 birds or th- sorry, 
a thousand birds, a thousand, birds. a thousand, oh. birds, 10,000, my goodness, That's a thousand bird exemption. Uh, yeah. So these are all efforts to try to make the very slim profit margins of farming a little bit, <laughs> a little bit wider by providing mm-hmm. opportunities for farmers to add value and to basically get more for their farm product. Yeah. Because value added food products can sit on the shelf and make money when you're sleeping is what I always tell people. Yeah. So it's good to think about that idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about organic agriculture. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. Okay, we're back. Let's talk about organic agriculture. Um, I noticed that you have a nice website dedicated to that for the purpose of agricultural professionals that might be interested in organic farming resources. Do you know much about organic farming, Deegan? Well, it's a personal interest of mine. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's the, the path I've been on, as well as we have a, a, a ever-growing organics program. It's so big. again, everything's tied to funding, but there was recently some additional funding put in place by the state legislator to support organic education. And Extension has been one of the recipients. So we're able to actually grow our faculty base, which means we can grow our research and our support and resources that are coming out about organic practices. We also partner with a lot of organizations, Oregon Tilt, for example, in putting together programming to support our organic farmers. Yeah, Oregon Tilt has a great um, downloadable brochure on it that can kind of help you start to learn about organic farming and some of the requirements. Um, In particular, though, can you tell us, so say I buy a small farm and I just have this vision for being organic. What if the farm wasn't organic before? How can I make it organic? Yeah, so you'll want to be working with a certifier and there's a couple different options for that. And there is a transition period. Mm. And so you aren't able to just flip a switch and say, well, I'm practicing organics now. There would be a whole review process that would look into what were the practices before, what was potentially sprayed or added in the soil, soil testing to determine what that transition period looks like, how many years at a minimum three to five And then you can start to move into a transition there for certification, although your practices can start immediately. Uh, And again, we don't certify. So we recommend working with a certifier to identify that process. So for instance, if I bought a cherry orchard that wasn't organic and I have all these beautiful trees, would I be able to switch that orchard maybe over to organic? Yes, that would be a possibility. And there'd be a variety of people to work with. And again, it would happen over time Mm -hmm. and there would probably be an assessment. So what's nice about working with extension as well is it's not just here's the steps you need to take, but as various things pop up, um, for example, when you switch from conventional, especially fruit tree orchard management to organic, there's going to be a whole new pest management regime and op- options to review. And depending on age of trees, uh, varieties, there's just going to be some, some different steps to take. 
So if I'm out driving through the Willamette Valley and I'm driving through farmland, can I look at a field and say, oh, I bet that's organic farming? Or is it just sort of, you know, people just can't really tell from driving down the road and looking at a field? Can you tell? I always wondered that. You know, that's a really great question. And the thing is, there's a huge spectrum of what can fall under organics. And there's a lot of, you know, misunderstandings about what it means. For example, some people think organic means absolutely no spray. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's actually not necessarily true. There are um, sprays that are okay under the organic certification. And so, you know, then there's, there are, for example, if we're sticking with fruit tree orchards, you often will see, you know, large orchards out there with bare soil, right? And Mm -hmm. nothing around, just the trees and bare soil. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not organic. Mm. Um, It just means they're having a particular weed management practice put into place. So it isn't always easy to tell. So if I have a plum tree in my yard, which I do, and I planted it in 2018, and I've never sprayed it with anything, does that mean it's following organic practices? Uh, It's not certified organic. It's not certified, but I'm not putting any chemicals on it. I think people don't understand these things. Right. Could have, could have, can you have your backyard organic certified? I don't know if you can. <laughs> I don't know if it'd be worth the time and the money and the investment of the, the certification. But is yeah, it expensive? Uh, it can be. Yeah, it can be. There's various price structures. Right now, though, there are actually cost share programs through the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which is... And, and Oregon Department of Agriculture, I think. Oregon has. ODA. So yeah. There's opportunities to get support through programs for certification. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, it would be considered an organic practice if you're not spraying or adding chemical fertilizers. Okay, good. So in the next question, you'd mentioned earlier that there's a thing called water rights, but I also see on the website, it talks about dry farming. Can you tell us what that means? To me, it was really weird to see watermelons in the photograph under the under the statement about dry farming project. And then there's watermelons. How do you grow watermelons without water? I don't understand dry farming. Can you tell us about it? That's pretty amazing. Uh, well, you know, I think the first thing to be said is that, you know, humans have been involved with dry farming practices long, 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 long before you know, OSU's university research started connecting. And there's so much amazing indigenous knowledge across the country and the world um, related to this. However, uh, in addition, OSU Extension started to work with a lot of farmers who either didn't have irrigation rights, uh, meaning they didn't have legal right to irrigate crops or were losing their rights in drought season. So you can actually lose your right to irrigate even if you have it mm. at a certain point in drought season uh, or are looking down the, you know, the path and saying, hey, water is going to become increasingly difficult even in our seemingly rich water resource area in the Northwest. And so uh, basically there was research and farmers coming together collaboratively. There's something called the Dry Farming Collaborative, uh, which basically is trying to look at what can we grow with little to no irrigation water. So this has to do with site selection, what kind of soils do well, what's the water holding capacity of soils in particular area to grow crops, 
Also, there's looking at uh, variety selection. What kind of varieties? What kind of crops do okay? So for those who aren't in Oregon or in the Northwest in our area, we have a long drought season in the summer here. We tend to be highly reliant on irrigation for crops. And yet what we're finding is there are many that don't necessarily need the amount of water that we offer them. So the, the dry farming project really is kind of community-based research at its best. It's been working with people all across the state, country, and now internationally to really just share stories and research and understanding of how we can grow looking at climate change and to be less reliant on the amount of water that our agriculture has become so dependent on. And yes, you can dry farm watermelons. Yeah. And it says that, um, there are dry demonstrations in Western Oregon every year since 2015. So for over seven years, people could actually come and learn from other farmers to understand what this means doing dry farming. Absolutely. Is it true? Okay. Yeah. So that those demonstrations are a part of OSU research farms. And in addition, there's a winter convening that everyone's invited to attend. If you are interested, you can connect with people who are doing experiments officially or unofficially on their farms. And cool. basically, it's a way to share resources. There's a Dry Farming Collaborative Facebook page. You can just search Dry Farm Collaborative and you can find and join that. There's online discussions that are occurring. And again, this is one of those things that is, is supported and that and it sort of came out of some efforts with extension, but it's so much larger. And that really is what extension does. We just try to leverage whatever resources we can to support what the community needs, wants, and is doing. So I think there may be a dry farm out near me in Clackamas where I live. And I think, and I'm just guessing, and you can tell me if I'm right or not, but they actually have prepared their rows and then they've covered the ground with some kind of a covering that probably keeps the soil from cracking and crusting. Is is that what part of dry farming is, that you have alternative sort of treatments where you can protect the ground from weeds and maybe keep the moisture in? Yeah. Can you kind yeah. of give us a brief kind of description of what it would be? I have no idea. Yeah, well, and I am not, I am by far from, you know, <laughs> an expert on the topic, but mulching is definitely one of the strategies okay. um, for water retention, also sort of hilling up or mounding up. Soil. Yeah, yeah, and that's so what they do. If you look at the Dry Farming Project website from OSU Extension, there's a ton of resources and okay. it goes in, there's, an, there's something called Introduction to Dry Farming, which covers some of the basics uh, and it'll cover, you know, site assessment, some of the basic strategies to put into place, you know, kind of how to experiment what people have found. That's and cool. again, you know, no farm is the same because yeah. it doesn't really matter what you're trying to grow or raise what you're farming is soil and your soil type is going to dictate your options. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next topic, which is one of my favorites. Quite a few years ago in Oregon, we started growing olives. And I'm wondering, do you have any um, olive tree farms in the area that you support with extension in your region? I know some people who are playing. You do? Because <laughs> I put an olive yeah. tree in my yard because I was just fascinated with the idea of growing olives. So, yeah. And that was, that's, you know, that's another, you know, this is part of what we do, right? We explore what's possible. 
Yeah. And, you know, olives have not really been seen as something that is going to thrive in the Willamette Valley. And yet we are seeing some success and Mm -hmm. people, you know, this this is the amazing thing about, I think, farmers and gardeners, right? Yeah. Always pushing boundaries, always experimenting, always trying to see what's possible. Um, I also know a lot of farmers that are planting peach trees uh, and actually as really viable crops. And so, you know, yeah climate change. I mean, Oregon peaches are so good. Oh my gosh. They're so good. Yeah. Um, I once went on this farm that had planted every single inch of their property with kiwi berries. Yeah. (laughs) Who knew? I mean, people plant things that they love. So I thought that was interesting. And of course, a really good olive oil from Oregon, you just can't pass up. No, I mean, to think about really, I mean, that comes back to our food system, right? If we can mm-hmm. actually start to provide our own olive oil sources and we can fill in our dietary menu in that way, that's really, yeah, that's exciting. So some of the things that I've actually gotten to interact with farms, um, one of them was a gal was growing her own pickles to make cucumbers to make pickles um so that was fun and then she brought them in and we made pickles together so that was one interaction i had the other was the the kiwi berries and the third one actually is dairy related which totally has agricultural tourism tied in um there's a creamery down in um canby aurora area called tmk creamery i don't know if you've been there but they're yeah, you might want to go check it out. They actually have cows there and they have a, a creamery where they're making cheese and they have soft serve ice cream uh, made from the milk from their cows. And they're putting in a distillery so they can make uh, vodka from uh, the whey. So um, can you tell us, have you had any interaction with agricultural tourism? With yeah. In your area? Well, well, there's quite a bit all over and, you know, there is an endeavor and a, a focused attention on what's called agritourism, right? Yeah, so, that's great. And, and just for the listeners, you know, agritourism can actually cover anything that brings the public onto your farm. Mm-hmm. And so what is considered agritourism can be a farm stand on your farm that's bringing the public there or the farm to table dinners or events or, you know, having a distillery using farm products and Really within our program, we recognize that anything that's agritourism is direct marketing. It really is an effort and an important endeavor to try to connect people to farm products. Mm-hmm. That being said, agritourism is a really complicated world, a lot to do with our planning and our permitting and different counties across the state interpret laws differently in terms of what you can or cannot do on ex- exclusive farm use property. Uh, So really depending on how your land is zoned and and what county you're in, your options for agritourism might look very different. Uh, So we are at Extension trying to help streamline resources. And we just came out with a really amazing free online uh, module that you can check out on agritourism. Uh, and it, again, it's sort of like the, what can I do with my small farm? There's some guided questions through it um, that help you identify the steps you might want to take if you're thinking about various agritourism endeavors. 
That's wonderful. Um, so the five key areas that I noticed were listed on the website were direct sales, which you mentioned, entertainment. So people could have a big field and put on a jazz festival. Again, that really depends on the county you're in. Yeah. I saw that out in Clackamas <laughs> County. There's like this one farm that like in the fall, they have jazz festivals and pumpkin patches. So yeah. Those are pretty cute. And then education, you'd mentioned Zinger Farms, where Zinger Farms has a great kitchen there, and they bring uh, kids and students and all types of people to learn about farming and harvesting and cooking and preparing the foods. And then recreation. What would recreation be at an agritourism farm? Maybe like horseback a, riding? Or like a farm stay, like coming and actually oh. spending the night on a farm, coming and bringing your children to meet goats or sheep or yoga, goat yoga. Oh, goat uh, yoga. <laughs> the, the idea that you're having pleasure, having a leisurely activity out while, you know, learning about and engaging on a farm. You know, and I think it should be said, there's a lot of concern around agritourism because people push back that it's not a farming endeavor. And that's where we really want to continue to advocate for any of these activities. If they're connecting people to a farm, they're increasing the marketing opportunities for that farm and they're making it a more viable business opportunity. Yeah. I mean, if your farm is located in a central location with lots of other small farms around, maybe you would have the right spot to put in that store or, you know, a spot where somebody can stop and buy squash in the fall, or maybe you have your jams and jellies on a shelf or your pickles or whatever it is that you're interested in. And people can come and buy that stuff. It's really, really great to have that direct sale. And lastly, hospitality. I think the wine grape growers are the best, maybe an example of agritourism in Oregon where you can drive through the valley um, down around McMinnville and Dundee and drive right onto the grape orchards and then go and have a glass of wine and maybe eat some charcuterie and cheese or something that's been procured from a local purveyor. And it's really wonderful. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. So um one of the last things I wanted to just talk to you about were the online programs for successful whole farm management. I don't know if you know much about those um, short courses that are there, but if, if you could just tell us about the ecological strategies um, for managing insects on a farm. Do you know anything about that class? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, so that's probably going to be connected around integrated pest management strategies. And so looking at a holistic approach to how you're managing. So this is offering an alternative to say, just identifying whatever spray would be most targeted to a particular issue uh, and kind of thinking about a systems approach to how you're managing challenges on the farm. And those, those courses, the, the Growing Farms, Whole Farm Management, there's also a book that's out. And it was several years in the making, both that online course and the book. And what's really great about it is that it relies heavily on interviews and connections with farmers in our areas. And so it really is based on farmer knowledge is complemented with, you know, OSU research. So what's nice is you actually get to hear from farmers what works. And, uh, you know, I'll say time and time again, it's always great to connect people to OSU research, but the real 
the real powerful exchange of ideas and information happens right between farmers and we just come there to support it. I mean, one time I listened to a talk about how a farm was rotating different animals through their fields to take care of all, um, all the different types of weeds and pest management. So like the cows would be there one day, then the sheep would come through, then the goats were coming through, and then the, it was finishing up with the ducks. Uh, so yeah, I think that's pretty cool that you can manage um, the land that way. Yeah, leader follow leader strategies. And there's also, you know, opportunities for, you know, how you have interplantings. And so there's, you know, certain plants that can be paired together. There's a lot of different strategies that you can look at things in a systems design. So if somebody's in the city and um, right now, I think one of the things that people are doing with their yards is they're turning them back to... Um, I don't even know what the term is, maybe more environmentally friendly, sort of not green grass anymore. But I like have a couple of neighbors who just covered their grass with wood chips and they have native species and cut trees down and left the stumps there and they're planting, you know, native plants and things like that. Um, they're not necessarily farming, but I think some of the things that they're doing, people could maybe learn from some of the things that you have available. Um, in the programs at OSU. Yes. So uh, there's actually, you know, we have a great publication that came out recently called Beneficial Hedgerows, which oh. is talking about planting hedgerows on your property that are both in sectory benefits as well as providing all of the other benefits hedgerows can provide. And so a lot of uh, these ideas are applicable. And with our program, we work with commercial operations, but we also work with a lot of rural landowners as well. I mean, not all small farms are businesses. And so really thinking through, you know, what are the opportunities for managing land and, and connecting to resources? In addition, there is the OSU Extension Master Gardener Program. So that is separate from us. But if you are a gardener and you'd like to tap into a whole abundant list of resources, the Master Gardener Program with OSU Extension is a really great resource. And lastly, I just can't end our conversation without bringing up the bees. Do you know anything about having bees on your farm or in your yard? Well, we would be nowhere without them. So we would be nowhere without them. <laughs> We'd be exactly. nowhere without them. We would, we would <laughs> cease to eat and cease to exist. Cease to be. Uh, Yes. I mean, any way that you can create beneficial habitat on your farm. And also, I mean, we require, we need them for pollination. So if we're going back to those fruit tree orchards, you know, I mean, some people actually hire, you know, colonies of bees to come and be placed on their properties to assure pollination. In addition, uh, you know, there's, there's ways that we can enhance the habitat and the whole ecosystem that is on our farm. And so really kind of trying to think about the farm, not just in a singular fashion, but as a whole system and how you can support the bees and the po other pollinators that are out there. There's a, a pretty great endeavor by the OSU Extension Master Gardeners to help facilitate mason bee habitat on farms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, mason bees are prolific <laughs> pollinators as uh, little soul bees. And so there's really great opportunities for that if you are not able to have hives in addition. We actually, uh, back to my plum tree, it got pollinated by these teeny little, little pollinators. They look like flies, but I was told they're actually a type of bee. And so 
you never know what's going to actually pollinate your fruit trees. No, you never do. Never know. In fact, I had to pollinate our our plum tree two summers ago because uh, it was too cold and I I needed to go do it with a Q-tip. So I got some fruit. Yeah. And I do have to share because, you know, slugs are often villainized. Yeah. Uh, And I was actually touring a Japanese gardens in Portland and there was a particular shrub and they informed me that the only way that it is pollinated is by slugs. So slugs are also and can be pollinators as well. (laughs) They're just as important as air and water. So are there any last words of wisdom or advice that you'd like to give our fellow farm and food entrepreneurs? Well, I would just say, you know, farming is deeply, deeply personal. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of um, going to all kinds of different farms and talking to all kinds of different farmers. And there's as many different farms out there as there are people. And every piece of land has its own personality as well. And I invite you to uh, check out OSU Extension Small Farms programs, as well as some of our affiliate and partner organizations. And uh, happy farming. And oh, I would also end that you are a beginner farmer for the first 10 years of your farming path. And I think most of us would very humbly say we would add a whole nother 10 or 20 to that. (laughs) Exactly. It's not instant gratification. (laughs) No, it is not. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time and we have to wrap it up. I want to thank you, Tegan, for joining me and sharing your story and all about the work that you do in the farming community. It's much appreciated. We record Masoni and Marshall every week. You can tune in and find us on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Lon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. If you want to be a guest on our show, you can submit that idea to startupradio.com or contact us through Instagram. Until next time, bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers, as well as farmers, fisher folk, and ranchers, by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.